You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reeds. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable reed-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So I was driving here, and I wanted to tell you I was on my way. So you know how you can talk into the phone, like, send text message or whatever? And Siri comes on, it's like, send a text to me. Uh-huh. And I said, Galit. Oh, no. And the phone goes, I don't have a contact for beat. <laughs> and I said, no, Galit. I don't have a contact for dead wheat. <laughs> So, yes, I was like, I was thinking maybe if I put Gallet, but yes, iPhones are not very tolerant of Israeli first names. They need to get their stuff together. (laughs) I have to say, it's in keeping with the spirit behind my name. I mean, it means little wave in Hebrew because in Israel, a lot of people uh, use like nature names. Mm -hmm. I mean, beet, dead wheat. I don't know if dead wheat waves so much, but <laughs> I that was funny. Dead wheat. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> so it's spring break. It's glorious. It's right smack in the middle of spring break, which always gives me a subtle sense of ennui. Does that happen to you? A sense of what? Ennui. You ever feel ennui? I have no idea what word you're saying. <laughs> it means like... It's just like a slight sadness about nothing you can put your finger on. How do you spell it? I have to look this up. E-N-N-U-I, I think. E-N-N-U-I. It's, oh, I'm in spring break, and it's so wonderful that it's halfway over. And it's just that, like, slight sense of sadness. Like mourning it that it's over. Yeah, I'm looking it up. I can't believe you've never heard this term. A feeling of listlessness or dissatisfaction arising from a lack of excitement. I'll try to use it in a sentence today. (laughs) Your word of the day. A slight listlessness and lack of excitement. 
Well, I feel like in some ways my spring break is just starting because I just came home from visiting my family in Washington State. Typical introvert. I also like to have a period of time at home where I'm just doing nothing. I don't like to be traveling an entire break. You are speaking my language right now. I ate so much food. Good for you. My mother's love language is feeding people. And it was just like, and now you'll eat this, and now you'll eat this. And I was just like, um, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love when moms just feed and feed and feed you. Yes, but I'm like, I was on the plane home yesterday, and I was like, these jeans, not a great choice. I'm... I need to be good the rest of the the break. feeling of freshly washed jeans, but you've been wearing them for four days. And I've been eating for four days and (laughs) traveling for ten hours. It was not cute. It was not cute. Oh, no. Well, my spring break has been an introvert's dream. I've been spending so much time with my cat and binge-watching Netflix and making reads and getting my mouth back in order with the practicing and the long tones and things like that. It's been so good. And the weather here has been perfect. That's awesome. Yeah, like in the 60s and 70s, it's been so perfect. I've been taking walks and doing yoga. Ugh, this all sounds far too productive for a spring break for me. It's I don't know. Really. I mean, I watched an entire season of the Netflix show Love in one evening. Oh, I love that show. Oh, they came out with a new season. It's so good. Oh, I have to check that out. I've been watching a bunch of Real Housewives, and I know I'm getting judged by our listeners right now, but you know what? This is a self-care spring break, and we all have our things, and that is my guilty indulgence. And no, I wasn't making reads or doing long tones when I watched. So (laughs) Now I feel judged. Jenny, thank you very much. No, I'm actually taking, I am going to make some reason process some cane, but I'm actually taking the spring break off from the bassoon after giving birth to my burial baby. It just tore me up in terms of the physical approach to my instrument. And I was like, ah, I'm feeling a little bit of, you know, just tension where I shouldn't be and all those weird fingerings and it's such a long piece and I was practicing it for so long daily. I just immediately after performing, I had some stuff that I had to continue practicing for. Um, So I haven't really had like a reset, recharge, let my muscles relax and recoup. So I decided I'm taking spring break off from my instrument and just focusing on self-care and recouping and getting ready for the second half of the semester and I'm not feeling guilty about it. (laughs) Snap, snap, snap. (laughs) I did, however, to turn back a couple episodes, we successfully purchased our tickets for La Scala in May. Oh my God. So just to recap, my husband and I are going on an Italian excursion um, late May, mid-June, and number one on my bucket list since I was 18, since I heard Pavarotti live at La Scala and heard how berserk these audiences go, and I was just like, I have to be there, this is where I need to be, was to see Uh, an opera at La Scala. So after years of budgeting and saving and whatnot, we had our show and we had to set our alarms very early because they went online. Um, Obviously, uh, in Italy, during Italian time, they went on sale online. 
And so we had to wake up early and then we were like hit and refresh and like had to pick out the seats really fast because these shows, they sell out, you know. And so mm-hmm. we were not confident that we would even get tickets. And uh, we did. I can't remember like freaking out about a ticket purchase that much since the Backstreet Boys when I was 14 years old. But we got I'm judging you so hard right now. You're judging 15-year-old me retroactively. Retroactive judgment. Oh, rude. <laughs> but we'll be seeing Aida in May. And I, oh, my gosh, I cannot wait. Now it's time to pick out a dress. Now it's time to pick out, you know, jewelry and shoes. And I'm so excited. I just get giddy every time I think about it. I am so jealous of your Eat, Pray, Love tour. (laughs) Emphasis on the eat. (laughs) The praying is going to happen while you are watching, and then the love is going to happen in the form of tears afterwards. Yes, exactly. Oh, I'm so excited for you, slash super jealous. I'll bring you back something good. Would you really? Yes, of course. Something expensive? We'll see. (laughs) No Prada bags. I'm not, it's not made of money. I play the bassoon. Bring me back some leather pants. You're crazy. <laughs> oh, my God. This is a huge segue, but I have a shout-out this week. Please. So I guess um, I guess a lot of our listeners would know the classic FM station. They, they have a huge social media presence. They're constantly posting hilarious things on Instagram mm-hmm. and Facebook, and they have a new podcast out. It's called Case Notes, and it is a classical music true crime podcast. Okay, as a lover of both classical music and true crime, how does this work? Like, what does that mean? Well, they've come out with one episode so far, and first of all, I felt so ignorant that I did not know that after Haydn was buried, somebody stole his head What is happening right now? They stole his head after he was buried, like a week later. (laughs) You didn't know either? I don't know Ennui. I don't know where (laughs) Hayden's head is. I don't know what's happening in my life. I've been watching too much Real Housewives. I'm missing the important stuff. Fair warning, I would not recommend listening while you're eating because that was the mistake that I made. And they pull... No punches about the level of disgusting description about the state of his head. Oh. But it is fascinating. And I had no idea that that even happened. Nor did I. Like, I don't want to give away the whole story, but he is currently buried with two. There are two skulls in his grave right now. I highly recommend it. But probably not when you're eating. I always heard Haydn was two faced. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible
possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, And it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender reed knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student reed knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your reed making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or reed tool roll. Visit them now at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Nicholas Daniel, oboe performer and conductor. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, Double Read Dish. <laughs> it's great just great to have a chance to chat to you. Can we start off by having you kind of introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us how you started your journey playing the oboe? Sure. Well, I'm Nick, Nick Daniel, and I guess that my journey into music started through church really uh i my parents were churchgoers and it seemed to me an obvious thing to do to join the choir we had a little choir in our village church at the time and um then we moved house to a bigger church um a, a town called hitchin which has an absolutely beautiful and massive parish church not a cathedral but it's, it's the size of some cathedrals nearly um and at that point my singing seemed to be going I mean, going really well. It was showing sort of, I would say, ability um, from what I from what I remember being told. And then my mother was always trying to keep up with her. She was the youngest of four girls, and she was always trying to keep up with her sisters. And and one of them had sent her son to King's College, Cambridge. And so Mum decided that I should go and be a chorister at King's College, Cambridge as well. But I didn't get in because the academic test was beyond me. Um, but I got into Salisbury Cathedral, and the thing is that when I was seven, my mum had said, look, you can have the choice between horse riding lessons and piano. And, I mean, I've rather regretted not being able to ride a horse ever since, but actually <laughs> I think the piano is probably a slightly safer option, but I do love horses, though. Um, and so I took up the piano, and then in order to be a chorister at those extraordinary schools, and that there are a few of them now that have girls um, as well as uh, separate boys and girls choirs, like Salisbury was the very first one, actually, um, you have to play two instruments. And so it was my grandmother who said, the boy must play the oboe. My mother said, the what? <laughs> <laughs> so granny knows best. Um, so I took up the oboe, had a pretty grim teacher for a couple of months, but kind of 
just played it enough to kind of know that I've played two instruments, got into Salisbury. Then from there, I was lucky enough to be put under the guidance of an extraordinary lady called Irene Pragnall. And Irene, um, who's still very much alive today, is, is a sort of uh, uh, amazing figure inside British oboe playing. She's taught large number of people at an early stage, and that was kind of her speciality. Um, and I don't know if you, you know in America, but we have a system in this country and in other countries it's, it's exported called the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. Have you heard of that? Uh-uh. Um, Associated Board. Well, it's a very good way of kind of gauging how kids are doing to do... Uh, they, they set exams, and in those exams you play scales, you play etudes, you do oral tests, sight reading, and you play pieces. And they start from... If you had a not very talented kid, they could probably take grade one after a year of learning. Um, in the old days, in the 70s, when I'm talking about, um, they didn't have grades one and two for the oboe, so I started with grade grade four, I think. Um, and I did, and it goes from grades, well, three or one to eight. And eight is like, um, it's kind of like a, an advanced high school age student. So you're playing things like Poulenc Sonata, maybe the first move of Mozart Concerto, maybe... Things like that. Um, so I, I, the sort of equivalent of, of like a, a sort of someone basically thinking about doing it seriously. And Irene was famous for, for getting her students up to grade eight really, really quickly. And, um, and I, I was one of those. So in 18 months um, from starting with her, which was a couple of months after I started to play the instrument, um, so 20 months all in total, I'd done my grade eight and passed it. Wow. Well, it's kind of, yeah, it is. And the thing is that it sounds, I mean, it sounds a bit boastful, but the thing is that then after that, I had to do quite a lot of filling in all the gaps of the technical stuff that I'd not learned in order to be able to play those those pieces to that standard. So I did my grade eight again when I was 16, actually, and um, and got a, got a very high mark for it, which is, I mean, you should do if you're 16 and and going to thinking about being a musician, you should get a higher mark in it. But, um, yeah, so that it, it really, the whole beginning of it was through singing. And, in fact, I think that's one very important thing for me, is that I've always thought of myself um, uh, as a cantabile kind of performer. Um, and so when I play Elliot Carter or I play any of the new pieces hundreds of new pieces that have been written for me, um, even the most um, seemingly angular. I'm always trying to find a vocal kind of line in it because it's just my instinct. I've never really forgotten the feeling of being a 10-year-old boy in a, one of Britain's most exquisite cathedrals built in the 13th century, Salisbury Cathedral, with this incredible marble from the Isle of Purbeck, which is off the south coast of, of um of the United Kingdom, the marble reflects the voices in a vapor, and it, but apparently they've done acoustical tests now, and they found that this marble it reflects boys' voices in a particular way too. There's a kind of harmonic. Um, I've, I've also heard girls' voices in Salisbury Cathedral sounding absolutely magnificent. It's just an extraordinary thing. And for me, one of the things I'm always looking for in oboe playing is to build in an acoustic into the sound because 
the instrument itself has basically no acoustic. So any acoustic we get from the oboe has to be made by us ourselves. I mean, even the flute, if you play a staccato note on the flute, it seems to echo down it a bit longer than it does on an oboe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, singing's my my thing. I mean, my, my singing voice is is pretty grim. <laughs> it used to be pretty grim. I think it's actually got better in the last few years. I've done quite a lot of um, little bits of choral singing, sometimes with my children in, in their school choir, when they need an extra tenor or an extra baritone or whatever. But um, no, voice is not... You don't want... I mean, I occasionally demonstrate kind of volume in lessons of, of, of things, but um, volume of sound... Um, and and I do sing things and get my students to sing things in in lessons to help them understand the way that it, it feels in a voice. But um, no, the oboe is my the oboe is my voice. That's the thing. How do you? Uh, I'm so curious. How do you approach um, using your body as an acoustic? What are your? Be, yeah, I know you said singing, but is there anything more specific mm. you can tell us? Oh, about absolutely, that? totally. Yeah, it's actually, it may be interesting for your listeners. Um, in 1997, I was appointed as professor at Indiana University, Bloomington. And I was there for a couple of years. It didn't work out mostly because there really wasn't anything for my spouse at the time to do. She just wasn't, didn't she, she was not happy just being a mum there. She's a very fine clarinetist and a uh, very active musician. And there was just, it was, it's a difficult place. There's nothing to do, Bloomington, mm-hmm. um, unless you're interested in watching corn grow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so one of the things that I, I did a lot of there was working with, with American students on this concept of resonance and acoustic. Because it seemed to me that um, it, was, it was something that was taught rather differently over there, and it's partly to do with, with posture and partly to do with, with um, perceived ideas of sound. Um, but I always, I always work with my students that we have uh, the idea of the sound going from the reed vibrating down the instrument and therefore the air going down the instrument is vibrating. We sometimes forget that the sound is vibrating, uh, the air is vibrating in our mouth, in our throat and also in our lungs as it is expelled. You can't just stop vibration going backwards as well as forwards. It will want to go in any direction it can find because it's energy. Um, in the in the human body, the the um, the sinuses and the the spaces of of, re- of vocal resonance um, of speech um, are they're all over the skull and in the, in the face in the skull in the face and in the head and in fact if you were to pass air just through a set of vocal folds you would only get a kind of quack not unlike the oboe reed. In fact, you know, I, I once um, I once worked with a great Korean conductor called Sung Quack, um, and in fact, that's exactly what it, I, he was a great oboe conductor because, in fact, that's exactly what the oboe sound should be. It's a Sung Quack. <laughs> 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 it's been t- 
forgive me. Please forgive me, Maestro Quack, for saying that. <laughs> anyway, um, but if you if you add the resonance of the, the the nose of the sinuses, which are behind the ears and the top of the head to an extent, and all around it, you get a, a, a sort of space which you can think about in terms of of allowing the resonant the vibrating air to resonate inside. The same is true for the throat. If you've not got um, too much throat tension, it's possible to change the colour and the amount of resonance by, by um, to an extent at least, by changing the shape of, of the throat, which is why one of the reasons I think that throat vibrato is, is, is so problematic, difficult to make it work, because so much of the colour that we're looking for comes from different amounts of, of space in the back of the throat um, and the back of the mouth, positioning of the tongue, height of the top and the bottom of the back of the throat. So you're talking about small spaces, but then you're always talking about, when you're talking about small muscles as well with, with playing musical instruments in general, like finger muscles are, are sort of uh, groups of small muscles. So, but those things when meditated on and thought about in the right way, can definitely affect um, the richness of sound and, the and also particularly the projection of good sound. I always like to, to remember that Elizabeth Schwarzkopf used to say, I mean, she's, she's not the most popular these days, the most popular figure because of certain political affiliations, but um, she was certainly somebody I enjoyed her singing when I was quite young. I thought she was fascinating because she never made a sort of um, huge volume of sound but she was very penetrating sound carrying sound slightly oboistic and actually I had the chance to play to her one time I played the Mozart Quartet and she was in the audience and she was very positive and wanted me to go and spend some time with her in Switzerland playing she wanted to play, me to play the Strauss concerto to her but I never quite got around to doing it which is probably for the best but um, <laughs> but um, one one other thing about this resonance that I, I had first-hand experience of is that my my father, having been a smoker for many years, um, unfortunately got laryngeal cancer, cancer of the larynx, and he had to have it removed. And then he had, um, if you could just think anatomically for a minute, I'm sorry if this is gory, but actually don't smoke. That's the first thing. <laughs> but um, uh, so they make what they do is they make a new gullet, which is that um, so the air no longer goes um, from the mouth into the lungs. It goes from a hole called a, called a tracheostomy, a tracheotomy. Um, the procedure is called a tracheostomy, a hole in the neck, just under the Adam's apple. And that's where he breathed from. And everything in his mouth would go down his esophagus to his stomach. So that's a bit gruesome. But what they do is they use an extraordinary thing called a Blomsinger valve. And this Blomsinger valve is, it looks like um, in Toy Story, the penguin squeaker tube. Do you know uh -huh. what that looks like? Uh -huh. <laughs> it looks a bit like that. And, um, and they, they make it uh, go through the new gullet into the back of the throat. And then what, what he used to do is press it, and then vibrating air, having taken a breath, would go from his lungs through the Blomasinger valve into his gullet. 
And then he would speak, and then he had not only his own pitch of voice, because they got the right size, but that he had his own accent, he had his own um, style of speaking. Um, it was, it was when it worked, it was remarkable. And it just went to, to show me that the reed is one thing, the blomsing of vowels, the vocal folds are one thing. But what happens on the other side of it, not the oboe side, is really what makes the difference to how how the sound is made and particularly how it projects. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Could we have you talk to us about how you embarked on your professional career and kind of how you got to where you are today? Okay. Well, it was all a bit of a shock, really, because um, so I went from Salisbury Cathedral School to a specialist music school. Uh, the academics, when I was a child, if I can be really honest, were never really my thing. So I was always happy to go to schools which didn't require a very strong academic side of things. Of course, I, I never told my... I have two sons. They're 23 and 21 now. I never told them how useless I was at school until the day they left school. Um, because that would, <laughs> that would have been bad form. I certainly never saw of my report, said, or any of my reports. And I always told them that there was no reason why they couldn't thrive at everything they did. There was no genetic reason. And I'm not quite sure that's true. But anyway, um, so when I was, I think I was 16, and I did an audition. I, there was a sort of letter came around at school. This was a place called the Purcell School, which is London's specialist music school. Britain has um, St. Mary's Music School, Cheatham's School, Wells Cathedral School, and the Purcell School as the four specialist music schools, which um, take kids from, from very young up to 18. And they, they really do focus on music, a bit like the Gnesin Institute in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It, it's not. It, well, it certainly in my day wasn't really a hot house. There was far too much kind of bad behaviour going on for anybody to get hot house. <laughs> um, it's very, very good school now. The Purcell School, very, very seriously good academics as well as amazing music. And one of the things that was great for me was there that they five days a week we had half an hour's oral training, ear training in the morning. Um, and, you know, by the time I was 14, I was doing all the, uh, you know, well through all the Kodai books and the Hindemith books and, uh, and doing the sort, of, the sort of things that you really only see in Hungarian schools these days. Um, so then 16, a kind of letter comes around school, the BBC are looking for young musicians to audition, to be part of a young musician's plan. And so I auditioned for this and, and I did, um, I was lucky enough to be offered a, a BBC recording, and I was probably 16 years old, did it with my friend Azusa, wonderful pianist she was, and and I played the Reisenstein Sonatina, I think it was, yeah, beautiful piece actually, and Franz Reisenstein, and it's a very good piece for 16, 17 year olds, because it's proper music, and yet it's not incredibly hard, a rather clever choice from my teacher at the time, George Caird. And then just, I think I was like 16, and the BBC TV, not radio this time, launched a thing called Young Musician of the Year. And this is a, a national competition for anybody living in the UK or studying in the UK up to the age of 
19, I think it was, or maybe 18, including the age of 18, or under the age of 19. Um, and they were like, the, the first time they did it in 1978, uh, a trombonist won it. And I thought that was fascinating because and I watched it on telly. It was, it was hugely popular. Don't forget, at that time in the UK, there were only three TV channels and um, classical music was still occasionally on the TV because we had Andre Previn and he did things with the London Symphony Orchestra. We had the proms and that's still on TV sometimes. So I saw this thing and I saw that an unusual instrument had won it because he seemed to be the most musical at the time. Um, and I thought, well, if he can do it, then why can't an oboe do it? So the next, they do, they do it every two years. I think it's, I believe it's 40 years old this year, the programme. Hmm. Um, so, and they're doing lots of big celebrations. I've already done a TV interview for it, which is coming out soon. Um, so I, I went in for it, and I think there were five rounds um, of increasing length and finishing with a live TV concerto finale with four different groups of instruments with the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra. And so I was just 18, and um, the whole country, basically, I think like 18 and a half million people, watched me, watched me win it. And that was a very big shock as a beginning to my career, I can tell you, because it was, there was no um, slope up to it. There was just a massive, I'd describe it as a continental shelf into it. Um, suddenly I'm on the front page of every, every newspaper. I'm being requested for interviews, television appearances. I, I've got orchestras asking me to do concertos. I've got people asking me to make recordings. I mean, in a way, it, it was a dream come true, but it was a dream come true at probably the wrong age because when, would, when it would have been great to have that would have been when I'd really finished studying and um, my got my technique um, more like where I wanted, on, wanted it on a consistent level. I think the oboe playing very often consistency is the last thing to come. Mm -hmm. um, do you agree? Yeah, I think it's true that we, you get people, they, can, they show you glimpses of who they'll be in 10 years. Mm -hmm. But then the next the next minute they can sound like how they sounded two years before. Um, <laughs> so, two years is generous. <laughs> yeah, I was going to go for four, but I decided no, that was too mean. So I, I had a, and also this was just as I was finishing school and having the summertime and then going into studying at the Royal Academy. And so it was, it was a huge shock. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed all that attention. Of course I did. I was 18 years old. My parents had just divorced. I was, you know, terribly unhappy at home. I'd, I'd got so much attention and interest and I was being taken off here, there and everywhere. And then one day after <laughs> I just started studying at the Royal Academy with Janet Craxton, Janet Craxton was, uh, was actually the teacher of every teacher I've ever had. Hmm. or her herself um, were my teachers. And she had a very low speaking voice, and she said, mm, uh, can I see your diary? And I said, oh, uh, okay. I said, what do, you, what do you mean my diary? And I said, she said, yes, I want to see your diary. So she grabbed hold of my little green Musicians Union diary, 
And she asked, she said, what's this? And I said, well, that's a Bellini concerto in the South Bank in London. Hmm. And what's this the next day? Oh, well, that's Handel third concerto with the Liverpool Philharmonic in front of Prince Charles. Hmm. How are you going to get there? Uh, well, I'm taking the night sleeper after the concert in London. Hmm. Oh, my God. And what's this the day after that? And three days running. So what's this? I said, well, that's the Vaughan Williams concerto with the English Sinfonia in the church in, in uh, Suffolk. Hmm. How are you getting there? I said, well, I've got sort of trains organised. He said, it's a Sunday. The trains will be a mess. And I said, uh, and so she said, hmm, well, that's quite enough concerts for now. Don't take any more until I tell you. And I... I mean, of course, I was shaking like a leaf because I was, I was worried that she was being critical. And then she said, OK, now, furling, slow. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I know. So, um, and then scales and then, you know, just a, a normal gritty lesson with her imparting this amazing uh, wisdom that she imparted about line and... and De- dedication to the composer's intentions and um, oh, just the, the great things that she stood for. And, you know, I left that lesson, got back on a bus going down Finchley Road, and I just felt as though the most enormous weight had been lifted from me because I just started at the Royal Academy. I got people who'd seen me on the telly who didn't know me. Uh, they were either wanting to be my friends for the wrong reasons or not wanting to be my friends for the wrong reasons. So I was in this very strange place. Um, I was living away from home, you know, looking after myself for the first time. It was, it was very stressful. She was absolutely right to say that. And um, whenever I'm advising people, young people who do very well in competitions, I, I advise them to, to be cautious about how much they take. And that people of that age, particularly when the technique is still developing, the sound is still developing, the, the whole consciousness of what it means to be a musician, particularly these days of what social media means and how easy it is to, I don't know, upset people on social media. If you say the wrong thing or say, even say an opinion that's different to theirs, you can get people shouting at you. And all those things are pressures. So, um, but then I, so then I had those years at the Academy with Janet, and then unfortunately she, she died, which was a huge shock. But I was very lucky to have Celia Nicklin as my teacher then, who, who wasn't so much into um, telling me how to do what to do, how to do it, but more into telling me just get on and do it, which, <laughs> which is something I've rather needed as a, as a young person, um, perhaps still now. And... Um, <laughs> And um, so, and then I finished that time, and I had some studies with, with Hans Keller, a few lessons from him, and some lessons from a clarinetist called Anthony Pay, who I admire still hugely, um, because I wanted to get some different views on things. And, and then I felt ready to really start again. Of course, by that time, there'd been two more young musicians of the year, and the world wasn't quite as interested in me as it was when I was an 18-year-old and had first won it. But that wasn't a bad thing, because I always felt that uh, in my mind there might be an idea that when people said, you play wonderfully, that what they weren't saying was for your age. Mm. 
So I felt, you see, the thing is also, I think it's so important that that one has the respect of one's fellow professionals um, on stage when you're playing with an orchestra. That, that And I, it's something I, I, I find very important is to always go to greet the orchestra, oboes, say hello, um, to, to greet people with a friendly friendly face and an open attitude and to respect what they what they say and what they feel and what they want from performance. It's a shared shared thing. And I have to say that also in the time that I was at the Academy and then afterwards chamber music has been something where I think I've learned as much about oboe playing as from anything I was ever taught. Um, and I would say to, to young people just play in small groups, grab a pianist, grab a harpsichordist, grab a violinist, grab fellow wind players, duets upwards, it's all good. Um, it, it just teaches you things that it's so hard to learn from lessons. Um, and I've been very lucky to, to be part of great chain music festivals for my whole career, to have a, an established wind quintet my whole my whole career which I'm very very fond of and we, we really grew up together I would say um, and to have duos with pianists that have that, that have meant that they've been prepared to learn our slightly bizarre repertoire um, you know with a basically almost nothing in terms of numbers romantic very n- nothing very few classical very few romantic but then a great deal of 20th and 21st century music, um, including a whole British repertoire, which I think you could describe as the true romantic repertoire of the oboe pieces like the Vaughan Williams Concerto, mm-hmm. the York Bowen Sonata, the Rubra Sonata, the Bliss Quintet, the Bax Quintet, the, all the Britain works. I mean, Britain's not really romantic, but um, those those pieces stand as, as much of a romantic uh, oboe as we really have, and I think we're very we're very lucky that Goosens was such an inspiring figure in the 20th century British oboe scene because we have all of those pieces basically because of him. Mm-hmm. So that's how it all started. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did a call for questions, and mm. uh, we got a really great question from Sean Reynolds. He says, mm-hmm. "A friend of mine studied with you in Germany while on a Fulbright scholarship." Yeah, right. The concentration in project was learning Baroque oboe to progress her skills on the modern oboe. Mm-hmm. Do you feel more oboists should learn to play Baroque oboe in tandem with modern oboe? And what specific skills do you feel modern oboists can gain from learning to play Baroque oboe? That's a terrific question. I'm really glad that that was asked. Thank you. Yes, um, when I started at Bloomington, I, I had Steve Hammer coming in to teach Baroque oboe. He came in from New York. Uh, once or twice a month, which was great because he's a fantastic player. He's now living in Los Angeles. Los Angeles people, uh, Steve Hammer is amongst you. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, and he would take Shawm Band, and the the, uh, the university had a fantastic collection of Shawms. Um, and I started off thinking, well, really, it should just be the doctoral students that that are able to cope with playing both together. I saw the results. I saw that it did nothing to harm their modern oboe playing. It only helped it. And so I said, okay, let's try it with all the master's candidates. The same thing happened. Eventually, I was getting freshmen to start Baroque oboe at the same time as they were starting to do barrett and furling and long tones and all the things you do if 
younger people need that kind of developing work. So I, I would say that the earlier you can start playing both Baroque oboe alongside um, modern oboe two, the better. I don't think there's any need to worry that it will do anything except help, first of all, your technical understanding. Secondly, your musical understanding of um, how those, the scale of those pieces, the way the wind feels inside those instruments at the time. Um, my students that play Baroque oboe play Baroque music on the modern oboe too, but they play it in a noticeably more stylish and more, um, I would describe it as, as um, instrumentally, um, cult, um, temporally aware way. I, I used to think that it could, I think if someone was going through massive changes of embouchure and um, a lot of big changes, it might be best not to mix the two. Having said that, I've never really given it to somebody in that situation, so I don't know. It might help. But I think that the future, supposing we get through this this next little bump in a seeming decrease of, of uh, music in schools and uh, and uh, cultural support, I, I'm sure we will. I, I think the you can look at the sort of ups and downs of, of cultural provision and, and see lots of cycles. But... Um, I, I think that the future lies in, in modern oboists being able to play more than one instrument in a concert. That already started in the Chicago Symphony some years ago when I remember Alex Klein, when he was with them the first time, told me that they had some oboes made to play at, at 440 or 441 um, to play classical music on a classical style oboe but at modern pitch. Uh, I, I think that's a very interesting thing because then you you might be able to play a Baroque piece in a recital on Baroque oboe and a Romantic piece on Romantic oboe and a, a 20th century piece on an early 20th century oboe and then maybe a modern oboe playing a modern piece. I don't know. Mm. I'll tell you one thing is that the, the, the person who came to me uh, for Fulbright is Meredith Height and in her she did a, a, the equivalent of a master's programme in one year about two months into that one year, she took up the Baroque oboe. In her recital, in the June of that year, she played a Zelenka trio sonata and a normal rest of the recital on modern oboe. She played the Zelenka on Baroque oboe. She played the rest of the recital on modern oboe. So, and that was after a very short amount of time of learning. I, I, don't, I mean, Meredith is an exceptional player, exceptional musician, but I think if she can do that, then other people can do other things. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's been fascinating for me. I, I wish I'd thought about starting it younger, but it, it just wasn't on the horizon when I was young, in the same way in, in music schools. Um, and I'm lucky where I teach in Germany that we have very good early music school in Trossingen, very good early music school, and we're we're um, actually just recruiting for a new Baroque oboe teacher, Baroque, I should say. Um, and um, and in in Guildhall in London, where I teach Guildhall School, we also have a very strong Baroque oboe side, and I've got students there, many of which are playing uh, Baroque oboe. So go for it; it can do no harm. Fantastic. Uh, Laura Nelson wants to know um, what you do to combat performance anxiety. And 
I would actually be interested in how this has evolved over your career and the things you discussed, your experiences post winning this big competition, um, mm-hmm. if your relationship with performance anxiety was different at, at that point and whatnot. So regarding performance anxiety, I, I, I think even calling it that is, is, is a mistake. Um, my, my attitude towards it now is that I tend to be of the John Gielgud persuasion. Now, John Gielgud was a terrifically great British actor from the 20th century, Sir John Gielgud. And he said that nerves are a luxury we dare not afford ourselves. That is a very extreme point of view. But there are aspects of what he said in that that I think are very, very important. First of all, um, it's, it's really best to think about performing as an energetic art form. Um, with the oboe, quite a lot of the sound is, is, feels like it's kept inside us because there's the resistance of the instrument, there's the, the pressure of the air, there's the fact that you've got the sound a lot in your head. But in fact, thinking of it as transmitting energy and through sound to the audience makes a connection between you and the audience, which is what music making is about. It's what Britain called, Benjamin Britten called it, the three-way, um, uh, the, the holy triangle, composer, performer, audience. I like to think of it as inspiration, whatever that might be for you. Composer, performer, audience. Most things in this world seem to happen in fours, um, but... That's, that's just one, one aspect of it. But the, so really using the energy you have from nerves, because nerves are all about, um, about uh, having extra energy to deal with a situation. And if you use that energy in the right way, it's perfectly possible that you can um, ride the energy to give you a better performance than you'd have if you didn't have nerves. When, when I first came to prominence through BBC a musician I didn't even think about it I was just I was just excited to be on stage and and I think it's what you perhaps might call innocence um, and then I've been through times when I had more performance anxiety but I wouldn't even I would describe it as more more nervous energy uh, and um, in the end I would I would set myself sometimes little tasks like um if i so slightly superstitious things okay i I would say well if i can walk on stage without tripping up i know it could be okay uh if the first note speaks in the strauss concerto i think it'll all be okay or um i mean they were just things to occupy my brain i've actually worked a lot with the inner game techniques and i strongly recommend in a game of tennis um, and also in a game of music, although I personally found in a game of tennis to be, um, because it wasn't specifically musical, to be almost more useful. But um, those books are terrifically good about uh, um, identifying voices of sometimes negativity that that will be saying things like, oh, as you come towards passage, oh, well, you've, you've messed this up before, so you'll probably mess it up now, or, oh, this bit's hard. The thing is, those little voices, they need respecting. They don't have to be um, listened to. They don't have to be suppressed. 
they need respecting, but they also need sidelining to an extent. So noticing what your voices are saying is, is I think, very important. Using the energy also, and perhaps recognizing that as you go through a career, as you go through studying or, or career as a professional, that there will be times when nerves hit you more than others. Um, it's a bit like fear of flying. I'm basically absolutely as happy getting on, happier getting on a plane than a bus. I'm not so happy about airport security. I rather prefer bus security. But um, my, I, I actually went through a terrible stage where I had this fear, weird fear of flying. It was partly to do with serious long-term jet lag. Um, but in the end, you can identify, I can identify myself some of the thoughts and look at them and honour them, but not necessarily say to them that they are truth. So that's, that's some of the ways I go about it. I think one of the things we can do is, is off stage, before we walk on stage to play, is actually use a bit of energy. I, I use Qigong exercises, which are, are a bit like um, yoga, but much faster and much more energetic and a bit tiring to an extent. Um, and I used specific ones that were given to me by a very good shiatsu practitioner who suggested that they, they would be good for, for opening out the chest and making sure the shoulders were free, which is one of the things with the oboes. You have to make sure as much as we can that the shoulders and, and chest, upper chest particularly, are, are not locked by any kind of bringing the instrument up to performance position. So... Qigong is, is also very helpful, but even just jumping up and down on the spot. I mean, sometimes I just do get people to do pogoing, like you might do at a Lady Gaga concert. <laughs> I have, I've been to a Lady Gaga concert. I'm a big Lady Gaga fan. Uh, oh, yeah. She is, yeah. oh, she is something else live. But um, that jumping up and down the spot sends some of that energy down into the, into the earth underneath you. There is always earth somewhere underneath us in a concert hall. Um, so, yeah, that's some of the ways I go about it. Have you ever experienced imposter syndrome in your career? And if you have, what advice would you give for a young person struggling with it? Hmm. Well, I have to say that when you sent me a, a list of potential questions, I had to look up what imposter syndrome was because I hadn't heard of it. Then when I looked it up, I realized that it is something I'm aware of in myself. Okay, so this is all basically about the ego and about really what we're doing and why we're doing it and who are we doing it for. Um, in, in music, we have, we have a recipient of what we're doing, which is the audience. We have somebody who gave us what we're doing, which is the composer. And we are in between those two things as a sort of um, transmission device. And we add something of ourselves to it because we can't help but do that. Some musicians feel some styles of um, musical approach feel that taking as much of the human um, being out of it, so much of your own experience out of it as possible is the best way. Others feel putting more of yourself into it is the best way. I tend towards the former, which is I tend to feel that the more we can take ourselves out of it, the more the clarity of the music comes through and the more we have the chance to look from above, as it were, 
But why I'm talking about it in regards to imposter syndrome is that we've always got this thing about um, are we doing it for the applause? And as soon as you start to think about doing it for money, for applause, for gratitude, for the sake of your career, for the sake of your development, as soon as you put any of those things, it's, all, it's actually about you. And I feel that um, imposter syndrome is more likely to appear if you are in any way allowing your ego to get out of control. Or if you're genuinely perhaps concerned that what you do isn't good enough. Now, I think that a level of imposter syndrome is probably all right. I'll let you into a little secret here, which is that I have a recurring, I have several recurring dreams, one of which is that I can still sing as a treble, which is, actually makes me cry. Um, the second one is that I can breathe underwater. I think that might be a, an oboe thing. <laughs> <laughs> and the third one is that um, somebody, my, somebody said, oh, well, you can just sing that part in an opera. And so I'm late for the opera house, running to get into the costume. I go on stage and I go, I don't know any of the words or the tune. And everybody stands up screaming, bravo, bravo. I oh. think that's imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm okay about that, and I would say that my, what I now know to be my imposter syndrome levels do go up and down, but, um, and I don't think a little bit of it is, is too bad, and I suspect that there may be a central part of one's career whereby it's kind of livable with, and then the beginning part of your career, you just don't know really what people think enough, or maybe you don't believe it. I definitely felt that with yeah, musician stuff. And then perhaps as you get towards the end, you might worry that people aren't really telling you the truth, that they're being kind. But then that's when using your ears comes into play. I, I find that, that uh, uh, particularly when I make recordings and I, I record myself practicing too, it is, is just checking that things are as in tune as they feel, that things are as technically clean as I suppose they are, that things are that the vibrato is, is not slowing down like some old soprano um, <laughs> or getting too wide. I mean, you know, the fact is that our voices change as we get older, which is one of the reasons why I think my, as different things have, have as I've learned different things about myself in my life, I've, I've needed to play different instruments. I've never stuck to, to one make of instrument, um, actually, for, for more than five or maybe, maybe ten years at a time. It's been a, a real journey, and different things, different instances have given me different things. But um, in the end, there's always a journey going on in, in yourself, and I think it's a journey about your voice, the sound you make, about your interpretative depth, about um, the way you handle technical passages. I think that just gets better, quite honestly, because I think the, the, um, there's a tendency to rush when you're younger, perhaps, and um, and to allow things some more space when you're older, not because it's harder, but because you know the audience needs the space to be able to hear it, particularly in a big concert hall. Um, and that works also as far as what your body's concerned. I mean, the food I, and drink I put into my body, I'm much more aware now of what I eat and drink 
than I was even, well, even two years ago, but 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, I wasn't as aware now of what makes it feel good. Now I know that, that strangely, rather like Leon Goosen's, an egg before a concert is a really good idea, both nutritionally and actually substance-wise. It's just the right thing, not too heavy, not too light. Dipping soldiers, want of a toast, wonderful, absolutely perfect. I know that's the ideal meal for me before a concert. Sadly, I very seldom get it, so I can take, I can be found with the odd boiled egg in my oboe bag. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's 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 a funny thing that we we go through. There is always a battle with oneself, to an extent. And um, I think, for me, one thing that's helped me deal with these things is, is well, um, it's really having a basic meditation practice, a basic stability and sanity part of, well, every day when I can do it. And you can do that from a Christian perspective. You can do it from a, from a, Jew, a Jewish perspective. There's many techniques from all sorts of different faiths. Of course, Buddhism is, is, is where we started to learn about it from. Um, but there's lots of, of non-denominational, non-sacred styles of meditating as well. Um, sometimes it can just be counting breaths. Doing that and really stilling yourself allows one a greater understanding, I find, I found, and I'm continually finding, of, of what's true and what's not. One of my favorite questions to ask is, <laughs> can you tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance? Mm. Well, funnily enough, at the moment I'm just working up um, a piece I've not played for a, a couple of years. It's a concerto by British composer John Woolridge. And it's an absolutely spellbinding concerto. There is um, uh, there's a video of sound of it. On YouTube, people can find Oboe Concerto John Woolridge. It's it's, um, it's a massive piece with with a huge percussion section, sort of post-industrial percussion with oxygen cylinders and sawn-off um, scaffold feet and and lorry spring, truck springs and lion's roar, Verdi bass drum, tam tam. Um, it also has three oboes and a soprano saxophone that stand wow. with you on the stage. And they kind of act like a uh, Greek chorus, sometimes amplifying what you do, sometimes knocking it down, sometimes boosting it um, or commenting on it. Um, and it, it, it's an absolutely remarkable piece. Like, like many of the greatest pieces that have been written for me, it came at a time all the stars lined up for this piece to be the right piece for that composer to write at that moment. For me, as I was there, for the right, as I was then, the composer who I had very close relationship with as, as, as composer and performer, um, friend, friendship as well. I'd already played a number of his pieces. He'd written a number of pieces for me. He knew my voice. He described me at that time as his principal interpreter, which was a huge honour. The thing is that the, the, the work of commissioning these these several hundred pieces, I suppose it's like maybe 300 pieces, something like that, that I've, I've, I've had written for me over the years, um, is, is the most important thing I've done. And I, I, I uh, apart from, of course, having my beautiful children, <laughs> but, but actually, <laughs> musically, I'm very proud of my students. I'm very proud of their achievements. I'm, I'm 
so thrilled to help them along their way. I'm, I'm, you know, some of the recordings I've made, I I can occasionally listen to without wincing. (laughs) But, um, but actually, the pieces that I've had a hand in creating, that's that's what you call a legacy. And as they become better known, and other people will perhaps find a way to play them. that's going to be, I think, an, a great testament for the future, I think, and it, it's going to be a, a, in the same way as, as, as Goosen's left for us, something very special. And it's, it's something that that I, in terms of, of building career, people talk about that, how did you build your career? No, I just wanted to have new music because it's the most exciting thing to play on stage and knowing what the composer wants takes some of that pressure of individual interpretation away from you you can say well do you want it like that they can say no or they can say yes or they can say i don't know in which case you can do what you like but there was to answer your question there was there was one performance of this john woolrich concerto and i'm playing it um with the bbc welsh orchestra at the end of this month and it'll be on on the radio and on the internet so we can send that out when that's coming out i did it with the city of birmingham orchestra with sakari oromo their then conductor at Britain's festival, the Aubrey Festival. And it's the most beautiful concert hall with enormous beauty of acoustical vibration. And it was just one of those um, performances where it, it just flew and there was a sense of, of um, what I have read and have, can describe as incandescence that there was no, there was no pressure. There was no, um, there was n- nothing other than the audience and the composer and me, and maybe the ghost of Benjamin Britten in his little box mm-hmm. on the side. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of those times when I, I was so happy to be doing what I do, playing new music with a really great orchestra, a great conductor who really committed to the score. Um, colleagues standing with me on stage, the three oboes from the orchestra and a, and a sax player. Um, really understanding the piece. We had enough rehearsal. Um, and then the composer came up on stage at the end of, of the performance. And the, the moment I'm talking about, which is of, of real, of, of really important to me, is that he looked at me and he looked right into me, as he does, and there was just no words needed. I knew that he was happy with what we'd done. I knew that I was happy with what we'd done. And there was just this extraordinary moment of maybe two seconds of of looking into each other's eyes on stage and knowing that that had been something that had given music and this composer great service. I mean, it's it's actually still moving to remember now. and I'm so pleased to be to be getting that piece back up. It's a it's a really great piece. That's fantastic. Um, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Um, well, I think it's a little bit. I, I wouldn't advise them to do that because I would say to them that they could have a, you know, they could have they will have a career that is exactly what it should be. Something I've learned over the years is that you can have all sorts of plans and all sorts of ideas and lots of kind of goalposts as to where you think you should be at a certain time. But 
believe me, an enormous amount of flexibility is required when assessing whether you're heading towards or whether you've passed those goals. Because nothing ever happens as you expect it to. <laughs> I, just as I thought that the recording industry was in such a state of decline and that I would probably, as an oboist, not be regularly making recordings with, another, with a company ever again, Harmonia Mundi uh, said yes. I've done a series of discs with Harmonia Mundi, the most recent of which is uh, Oboe Quartets. And um, I'm very proud that my first disc with them was was, was um, Thea Musgrave, who's 90 this year, and that it was of a woman composer and a composer I'm very, very close to, who, who I'm very fond of as well. So I never expected that to appear at this point, and we have, we have plans for the future to record different things. But I would say that it's fine to have goals, it's fine to have goalposts, to aim for, but don't be frustrated or surprised if that you pass them before you expect to, or you never pass them, or they disappear altogether, and something else comes up in its place. It's like, in a way, it's a series of unlocked doors. You can, they're not locked in front of you, but you can, you can open them, and you can look and see what's there, and if it's a possibility, for instance, to if a conductor's heard you play and they might want or a festival director they might want to employ you then yeah send the cv send the recording tell them you'd love to play for them um but don't go too hot on it because you never know when you're going to put people off use your taste um walk through open doors but if a door is clearly locked and bolted move on um and it may be that coming back to that locked and bolted door a few years later uh, finds it unlocked and you're able to walk through it. Um, I would also say that our instrument still needs more repertoire. And I would say to all young oboists, make friends with composers. Write music yourself. Um, learn to improvise not just jazz, free classical improvisation, um, so that you're, you can really be spontaneous. Um, but composers have a kind of lonely life in many ways um, when they're writing. It's very solitary, very in the head. So having friends is something all composers need, and some of my, some of my really good friends are composers, inevitably, I suppose. But um, I would say that one thing I've learned from recently from having a son who's in the musical world of musical, musical theatre, Broadway, if you like, um, is that it's far easier for us as musicians than it is for actors or, or musical theatre artists. I mean, for ballet artists, by the time you're 30, particularly if you're a woman, it's basically over, unless you're, there's some exceptional reason why not. Mm. Um, and we should make the most of it every chance we've got to, to be on stage and be grateful for it. And, and actors, at least they don't have to practice exactly in the same way, but at the same time, and they can, so they can go and do waiting jobs, but I think that we have it pretty lucky. There's always something we can do inside music to keep ticking on until the thing we really want is ready for us. So stay, stay with it. Believe. If you believe in yourself as a musician, don't let anything deflect you from that, because 
and and know who the people are who you can trust with an opinion. Sometimes that changes, but there's probably, you can count them on the fingers of one hand. It's not just the people who tell you lovely things. It's the people who will tell you the truth. And those people, as well as your own ears, are worth their weight in platinum. Um, and there are some quite a lot of fair-weather friends who come and go in some ways. And it's nice to have those people's friends, but you can't always trust them. Another thing is, if a review is very positive, ignore it. If a, news, a review is very negative, ignore it. If a review is it's kind of has a few um, basic things to say, it might be worth reading, thinking about, and then throwing away. well i just want to say thank you nick daniel this has been an incredible hour to spend with you talking about music and oboe and your thoughts it's we're so grateful for you to be on our podcast absolutely you're really welcome i'm i'm so i'm so happy to have been on it um i i think it's great what you're doing and i hope we can get a few more people over here listening to it as well Well, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) So we hope you enjoyed that interview. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you can listen to us on YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google. Our next guest is the illustrious William Winstead, professor of bassoon at the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. Can't wait to share that episode with you.